Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're looking at the British resistance. That's right, we've heard of the French resistance and recently we had an expert on the Danish resistance. Well, in this episode we have Chris Pratt from the British Resistance Museum which is part of Parham Airfield Museum in Suffolk. Go and visit over the summer, support your local museums if you can. And he tells us about these highly trained forces that were kept behind, ready to go if the Nazis had ever invaded the UK. When I think of those who were on the home front, I think of the Home Guard. I think of the bumbling bunch of Dad's Army, your Mannerings, your Pikes and your Joneses. But it turns out I'm completely wrong. Chris Pratt brings us a whole new take on this history, to the point where they were so highly trained that as it became clear that the Nazis weren't going to invade... So many of them were drafted into the SAS and they were taken and sent off into occupied hostile territory. These were highly trained guerrillas. It's truly a fascinating episode. So here he is. Here's Chris Pratt on the British Resistance. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hello there. Yeah, we're fine. Thank you very much. Are you in Denmark? It's still very cold over here now. Yeah, I am still in Denmark. The sun is starting to come out. But yeah, I hear the UK is going through a bit of a cold spell. You've got some more snow on the way. They're threatening us that for this weekend, but I don't (laughs) think it'll get as far south and east of Suffolk. At least I hope not anyway. Yes. Okay. So you're based in Suffolk, are you? Yeah. Because that is where your museum is. The Parham Airfield Museum is, yes, it's uh, eight miles from home, eight miles from where I am now. It was a U.S. Army Air Force station, 390th Bombardment Group station. And back in 1982, people got together and thought there was a control tower we need to do something with. So 
they worked on that for about five years and then it was finished and the museum was open. So that was the origins of the museum up at Parham. Now, you see, I should have remembered that because I've actually been to Parham Airfield Museum because you guys kindly let me film there when we were exploring for History Hit the history of Joe Kennedy Jr. Ah, oh, right. Who yes. was based nearby, wasn't he? JFK's older brother. Yeah, he actually flew out from there and we've got... Well, sadly, we've got quite a bit of his wrecked plane up in the control tower because he was on this experimental flight and then something appears to have gone wrong. I think actually only last Sunday we were talking about it and something went wrong with the electrics, they think now. And unfortunately, the whole thing just blew up. But it was an interesting experiment to try and fly a plane fully laden with explosives to a target. But I think once that accident happened, I think that idea was shelved. Yeah, they were basically experimenting with kind of early drone technologies. They got these Liberator bombers, packed them full of Torpex explosives, put in a remote control device and a video camera on the front, and then a pilot would take them off and then jump out the back of them. And then a mothership in the air would take over control and then try and direct these Liberator drones into the V3 weapons sites in France. And one of those pilots was... Joe Kennedy Jr., JFK's older brother, the man who was destined, it was said, to be the President of the United States. Of course, that never happened. We could do a whole episode on that, but we're not here to talk about that today, Chris. (laughs) We are here to talk about, well, a really little-known story about the British resistance. Obviously little-known, I suppose, because we never had to fully use them. But tell me, what were the British resistance? Well, it really goes back to post-Dunkirk. We've got from the beaches of France and Normandy, we've got nearly 600,000 men back from Europe. All the heavier kits been left behind, of course. And of course, quite clearly at the time, we're next. The Germans are coming. On the 17th of June, 1940, the official name, GHQ Auxiliary Units, were formed. And their role was, well, there were three elements to it, but the main role was obviously to be there in your underground base, ready to come out at night when the invasion came and basically make a damn nuisance of yourself, interdicting supplies, blowing up railway lines. I think the feeling was you're never going to stop a landing. We just weren't capable of, if they came, they were coming, as it were. But it was more a question of slowing the process down, interdicting supply routes, because as you can imagine, they've already crossed, what is it, 20, 30 miles of channel By the time they've hit our defence lines, they're another 30 miles. So there's about 50 miles of communications there, which uh, if you can continually intercept with blowing up their ammo dumps, rail, their petrol dumps, etc., you can slow the whole process down. So it was really an exercise in slowing the invasion down so that what army we had were in a position to counterattack once we knew which direction they were coming from. So this was kind of an idea of defence in depth. We weren't going to be able to hold them back on the coast. They'd come inland and set up, and that's when we'd have these small secret networks to start blowing stuff up, really, making things as difficult as possible. So could I compare them to maybe the special operations executive forces that we had over in France who were preparing later on for D-Day and messing things up for the Germans in between the beaches at Normandy and inland? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think basically it is, if you like, if you can put it that way, the SOE at home. And of course, bearing in mind that Colin Gubbins, who was the first CO of the Orcs units, 
in September 40, he went over and became the military head of SOE throughout the war. So his background had always been in guerrilla activities. The only difference being is that they were trained to act at home when the invasion came, whereas SOE was sent over to make a nuisance of themselves in occupied Europe. And of course, eventually, moving on a little bit, many of these auxiliaires had joined the SAS. And of course, they went over to France to help the resistance, as you say, post-invasion to slow down the reinforcements to Normandy. Okay, so I'm saying the British resistance, but the technical term is British auxiliary units, the AUKS units, yeah? I wasn't there at the very beginning, but it's my understanding that when our historian John Warwick got chatting to some of the local farmers, and they sort of said, well, yeah, I have got a story, but I can't tell you, the Official Secrets Act and all that. I don't know where it came from, but somehow the sort of expression, the British resistance organisation sort of came from somewhere, and hence that's what the museum is called. But I understand from John, once they got digging down into the National Archives, started finding stuff that gradually was being declassified, they came across the realisation that, in fact, the official term was GHQ auxiliary units, I think designed to mean absolutely nothing, really. You know, auxiliary can have so many connotations. You could argue that the museum should really be the museum of the GHQ auxiliary units, but I think... Time had moved on and the museum was known for its name as the British Resistance Organisation Museum, so it stayed. But yeah, technically that's it, GHQ auxiliary units. The museum is at Parham, which is 20, 25 miles northwest of Ipswich, so about half an hour's drive from the east coast, basically. Great, and easy to get to from London. Just head to Ipswich and carry on driving. Well, just keep going up the A12, basically. Okay, so... Back to this story, because I've got so many questions to ask. The first one is, who was in charge of these? Who set these up? Was this one of Churchill's schemes as a kind of overarching figure here? Was it Alan Brooke who was in charge, because he was in charge of overall home defence? Who was it who set these up? Unfortunately, the media and publication organisations, they love to put a Churchill name to it. Churchill did not set up the auxiliary units. Basically, I think it's fair to say there's no one person. If we go back uh, mid-30s, obviously, we know war's coming with all the tension that's going on. In 1936, a new setup was created in the War Office. It was called General Staff Research in those days. In 38, they changed their name to Military Intelligence Research. They were really beginning to see, we're going to have a continental war. How do we deal with it? And then also MI6 set up Section D. They were looking at the whole exercise of sabotage and demolition with a continental war. The only sort of real military aspect was the beginning of the war. The southeast coast was defended by 12 Corps and a chap called General Andrew Thorne, commonly known as Bulgy Thorne. I'm for goodness now, I don't know why. But he set up very, very early in the process, even well before 1940, what he called stay-behinds, little groups of six or seven men, regular soldiers, of course, designed to go underground. So really, all this element sort of morphed into one when it came to the formation of the auxiliary units. Churchill comes in, as we understand it, basically because Duncan Sands, who was his son-in-law, and I think he had some sort of roving commission, sort of almost a minister without portfolio, but he got wind of it and told Churchill about it. 
And of course, Churchill being Churchill, immediately cottoned on, as everyone knows, he loves this sort of stuff, the set Europe ablaze, etc. So once he heard, he was fully committed and in fact, directed that all rearmament were directed at these patrols first. Training of these patrols was priority. A good example is our purchase of uh, half a million Thompson machine guns from the States. Only 92,000 got here. The rest are still at the bottom of the Atlantic. But they went to the auxiliary units first before the regular army. So Churchill didn't set them up. But once he heard of them, he was fully supported right the way through, of course. So he was a good patron. But that's fascinating to find out that these units were the first to be equipped. And I suppose it shows just how close we thought we were to being invaded by Hitler's Nazi Germany. Now, I've got a question here, right? Because when I think of home front forces, I think of the Home Guard. And then I think of Dad's Army, that 60s and 70s classic comedy of bumbling older guys, shirkers and fools who do actually manage to capture some Nazis in the end. But by the sounds of it, the people you're talking about aren't a Dad's Army. They sound far more able and highly trained. Yes, it's always very difficult. When I do my talks, I always have to be very wary because most people of my generation, I mean, my father was in the Home Guard and most of the audience I'm talking to, so you have to be a bit careful. But I suppose an easy way of putting it is that sort of the Home Guard were above ground. They're uniformed soldiers. They're defending the barricades, as most villages on this coast would have had. But eventually, as you say, they became fairly well-trained, well-armed but no, much, much earlier than that, the auxiliary units were being trained really as real guerrillas to really take it to the enemy hard in their training and their weaponry. And they were far more advanced than the Home Guard in the very early days. I suppose a bit unfair to always think about Dad's army because eventually the Home Guard did become quite a force. I must admit, I've always felt, thank goodness I wasn't, but if I'd been around... I'd rather have been in the auxiliary units because, sadly, the Home Guard really wouldn't have stood much chance. If you can imagine sort of 7th Panzer divisions coming through your village, they're just going to take you out pretty quickly. Whereas at least if you were an underground base, you might have a chance of doing something before they caught you. OK, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But if you're in the Home Guard, you were a uniformed member of the military, and so you'd hope you'd be protected by the Geneva Convention of some form. If you were in the auxiliaries, I'm assuming that you weren't uniformed, and you'd be shot. Yeah, no protection whatsoever. It's a silly phrase to use in wartime, but it was actually an illegal force because it was against the Hague and the Geneva Conventions. So, in fact, they were very well, how much they thought about it, I don't know. But historically, we can look back and say that they were very vulnerable. And we do show a film when a chap says that, well, yes, we did eventually realise that if we'd been captured, you know, if we were lucky, we'd been shot. If not, we would have been sort of tortured first and then shot. So, yeah, they had no protection. Sadly, moving on, when some of them joined the SAS, they, even though they're fully qualified soldiers in uniform, Sadly, that didn't protect some of them. We tell a story of a couple of operations, Bull Basket particularly, post-D-Day, when they were betrayed and 30 SAS, and I think that about 10 or 11 of them were former auxiliaires. And in fact, they were shot under Hitler's commando order. So sadly, history taught us eventually that the uniform didn't protect these people under that commando order. But no, you're right. Initially, if the invasion came and they'd been captured, they would have been shot. Yeah. So how did you become an auxiliaire? Because you're saying they end up being part of the SAS. So they have to be incredibly physically fit and able and capable. So why aren't these people on the front lines? Why aren't they called up into the regular forces? Well, I think there's three elements to recruitment. The straightforward ones are too young to be called up. 15 was the official age that we know when people were called up. We do have some paperwork which quite clearly shows that he was 14, but they made it into 15. So too young to be called up, too old to be called up, which, of course, would have brought in World War I veterans. But the main area of recruitment was in reserve occupation. And bearing in mind, a lot of the time we are talking in the rural world. We're only talking sort of 30 miles inland from the northeast coast of Scotland, right the way down south of London to Pembrokeshire. So we are talking rural world and therefore of course farming farmers gamekeepers hunt followers we've had people that were butchers there's a huge variety of occupations which i hadn't realized to be honest until i started delving how many reserve occupations there were 
I mean, my father was a reserve occupation in London, moving cold around the country, but I suppose somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so yeah, it was reserve occupation was the main target. And of course, that meant you did have Well, they weren't all fighting fit, of course, but you did have a good crux of reasonably fit young men. And was it just men? This is where you have to start differentiating between the three elements of the Orcs units. The operational patrols, the chaps that we've been talking about, that's a fully male organisation. All of the guys in their bases, they're all males, all civilians, as we've discussed. Where the regular army comes in is with what were called scout sections, And these were normally each county seems to have had a couple of groups of six or seven men and they were detached from their regular units. So for argument's sake, up here, you'd have six chaps taken out of the Suffolks, sent into the countryside to train these newly recruited guerrillas. Three targets basically for training, sabotage demolition, of course, primary, close quarter combat. You want to try and get out of a scrape if you can. And then finally, how to use your firearm. Most of the auxiliaires I've spoken to said that if you started needing to use your firearm, it's probably game over anyway, because you've alerted the other guys around you sort of thing. But they were the regular army source. And then the other aspect of the regular army is the special duty section. And they morphed out of MI6. I referred earlier to section D of MI6. Well, the special duty section morphed out of MI6. And these were basically, to put it crudely, the spies you would have had above ground civilians, doctors, vicars, midwives, district nurses, people who come invasion still need to be out and about on their day job. And it was their role to be trained in unit identification, obviously German unit identification, vehicle identification, types of tanks, etc, etc. And their role would be to feed this information as the chaps are coming through your village feed the information either through dead letter drops or by radio to underground radio bases. And then they would be directing that information through to, again, we've now got a completely separate issue of all the underground radio bases were manned by women of the ATS. So they would then be receiving this information. Their stations were called in-stations, normally somewhere near a divisional headquarters, So the vicar would go into his church, let's say, under the altar, he's got his radio. He would feed information to the girl in her in-station, and then she could then relay it to the army for him to decide, you know, what to do with that information. So the ATS, obviously a a fully uniformed military organisation, and of course their radios had to be serviced, which is where you had a small cadre of royal signals. So it's not quite simple to say they're all civilians, but certainly the operational patrols, guys, that's a completely civilian organisation. Well, first of all, Chris, you've explained that absolutely eloquently and perfectly, because that sounds so complex, but you made it sound so easy. Yeah, there are a few nuances, but you don't want to get too deep, put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the idea that at the moment that there was the sign of an invasion, so let's say Operation Sea Lion had gone ahead and the Nazis had successfully invaded, then everyone springs into action. Your vicar heads to the church, probably gets the bell start ringing and the radio start going. And then once the invasion does come into place, you've got people who need to be above ground, like you say, everyone from nurses and midwives through who are spying, relaying. And then people are also in, did you say underground bunkers as well? 
Yeah, the operational patrols, they were in what were called operational bases. So the above ground people, they were sort of at home doing their day job, feeding information back. But the operational patrols, the guys that are going to go out at night, each of those patrols had an underground, what we call operational base. So their training was in and around that base. And as you rightly say, come invasion, if they're heading for your village, you would be going into your underground base and then coming out at night to do whatever needed to be done. Some of the bases had also, there's one base up here that had a lovely observation post nicely sighted over the A-12. So about 100 yards from the actual OB, there was an observation post. So yeah, so every patrol had a base. We don't know how many. There's no records for obvious reasons. Over 300 have been found. We think about 600, 650 patrols at its height, you know, mid-43. But of course, it is really a question of digging around, to be honest, because there's not a nice little list you can work your way through. So are you saying that there are 350, perhaps, unknown bases out there ready to be found? Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. Our sister organisation, Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team, they're the guys that run a website with lots of information. But each county that had bases has an officer whose job is actually to sort of poke around and have a look. Every now and then, even now, we're still getting veterans who are coming along and saying, oh, by the way, I was involved. But obviously, sadly, now you've got to be about 92, 93 now or something. So sadly, the personal contact will very quickly disappear forever, unfortunately. Most of the bases that have been discovered are on private land. So you've immediately got an issue. You can't just go bowling along with a digger and dig where you think you might be something. Some landowners are very good once you tell them the story. Others, uh, to be blunt about it, don't want to know because they don't want their land dug up. But yeah, the majority seem to be on private land. Well, I think that's certainly how a lot of people are going to now spend their summer, Chris. I mean, if we can't travel abroad, then I can think of worse things to to do in our spare time. As far as we can gather, there doesn't seem to be much of an attempt made afterwards to go around the country destroying them. We know some that were known that tried to be destroyed, but we get the impression very much that it was a question of walking away and really just letting nature take over. So of all the bases we found, they've all collapsed. Normally the roof comes in, the elephant iron eventually goes. So none of them have been fit to reconstitute in situ. We have a replica base at Parham and down at Coles Hill, which is the regimental headquarters down in Wiltshire, the National Trust there have built a replica there as well. But all of those that have been found, none of them are fit to be reconstituted in situ. Okay, so when are these forces officially stood down or when do they start to move off a level of high alert? Is this kind of towards the end of 43? Yeah, I think probably, as you say, by the middle end of 43, obviously the tide is turning. We mentioned the SAS earlier. In fact, it was in the mid-43 that Colonel Paddy Main, CO of 1SAS, he summoned, we believe to be about 400 auxiliaires to the Curzon Cinema in Leicester Square. And the story is, and one of the chaps on the film tells us that he basically, as far as he could, said, well, we've got the second front coming. We need more men. And apparently the story is, he said, I'm going to turn the lights out. And if you don't want to join us, you walk out. The story is everyone stayed put. 
and this chap says that he was more scared of leaving his mates than he was of actually sort of staying behind to see what the future held. So there was a big recruitment drive going on for these sort of guys. As you say, they're fully trained guerrillas, not like today, as it were. You take a squaddy from the Suffolks who then wants to go to the SAS. He's got to be sort of trained to fit the mantle, as it were, whereas these guys, you literally move them sideways and stick a uniform on them and off they went. So I think you're right. By mid-43, things were beginning to calm down. The special duties section was stood down in July 1944, the spy radio network, for want of a better phrase. They were stood down in July. The operational patrols were not stood down till November 44. There's no official reasoning behind it. Someone obviously made a decision. We suspect that when you think about August 44, we're breaking out from Normandy. We're going east. Nobody's coming west. So obviously their role was no longer necessary. So, yeah, November 44, some of them got a letter saying, thank you very much because of all you've done. We're not going to acknowledge you and basically go back to civil life sort of thing. But some of these people on a reserved occupation were allowed to leave that status and head off with the SAS. God knows where, but usually into occupied territory. Again, nothing set in concrete because of the nature of the beast. But we do have some paperwork at the museum where an auxiliary in an operational patrol was actually called up. I can't remember what his job was, but he was called up. But within two days, we've got the card that says basically to his new CO, in crude terms, sorry, you can't have him, send him back. So obviously he was felt to be more important in his role as a civilian auxiliary than a sort of a squad in an infantry battalion. We do know of people that spent a couple of years in the auxiliary units and then for whatever reason did move on, whether it was because of his role was no longer needed as a reserve occupation. He may have been working on a farm and the farmer had been told, well, sorry, you can only have two workers, you've got a third one or whatever. But once you were in, you didn't necessarily stay. Many did stay right the way through, but some did eventually go on to the service, the armed forces proper. And was it the case that those who ended up joining the SAS, and I don't know how many of these people you've been able to speak to have come up and said about their stories, but was it the idea that this is their last chance to get involved in the active war effort? Yeah, I think that must have been very much the mindset behind them. In fact, on the film, some people say, well, we've been so well trained the way things going, and they're not coming. We can't have a go at them over here. So the opportunity arose to join the SAS. And as you say, take their skills abroad. And we have no idea as numbers, no idea. We know of some people because of operations that went wrong, but we've no idea as how many auxiliaries join the SAS. Those we know of, some of them sadly never came home. Others did, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You've made me completely rethink the way I look at those who had reserved occupations, the way that we know civilians would have had to react if the Nazis had have invaded, and I'll never look at Captain Mannering or Corporal Jones in the same way ever again. Now, your museum, the British Resistance Museum, is that open for this summer? We are hoping to open on Sunday the 23rd of May. We're actually literally now looking at all the various regulations that we're going to have to face We've got a new exhibition room, which is nice and big and will hold a dozen or so people with the distancing and so on. But in the control tower and other parts, there are some quite nasty choke points, as it were. So we've tried to work out a one-way system throughout the museum. But we're hoping to start on that Sunday. 
Brilliant. Well, we'll put a link to your website in our bio. And it's been a hard time for local museums over the last 12 months. So I urge anyone who can to head out there, contact the museum and book in your date to go and visit. Thank you so much, Chris. All the best. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.